Hello. Welcome to the Call Like I See It podcast. I'm James Keyes, and in this episode of Call Like I See It, we're going to discuss the United Auto Workers strike, the high stakes play that the union is making to get more of a fair shake on what's happening with the profits in the auto industry, and the important role organized labor plays in our capitalist society. And later on, we're going to react to and try to make sense of some new recommendations from experts as far as what they're saying, the seven exercises or machines that people should avoid in the gym. Joining me today is a man who looks to be in his groove this morning. Tunde Ogonlana. Tunde, are you ready to share what you heard through the grapevine? Always, man. As long as I heard it, I can share (laughs) Only firsthand? It. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, we're recording this on September 19th, 2023. And last week, the United Auto Workers, a labor union that dates back to the 1930s and has nearly 400,000 active members, began a strike in an effort to secure a new labor contract with each of Detroit's big three, being Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which is like Chrysler and Jeep and all that. They, they formed from, from a merger a while back. In broad strokes, the union is looking for pay increases and other quality of job things. And as I said before, generally try to get the labor more of a fair share of the record profits that the automakers have been making over the past few years. And this is also in the context and in light of a lot of the concessions that were made a few years back during the financial crisis and after that. So to get us started, Tunde, between the recently started, this recently started UAW strike but also, we still have the Hollywood strikes, the writers' strike in, and that's been going on since May, and the actors' strike that's been going on since July. What do you make of all these high-profile, all this high-profile labor turmoil that's going on right now? Like, you see this stuff looking. You know, we can look specifically at the UAW, but also again, there's a broader context. Do you see this as like just normal class conflict that pops up from time to time, or do you think there's some bigger issues that are driving these? Um, great questions, man. I think like most things that we discuss on this show, there's probably a little bit of both <laughs> somewhere in the middle. But um, I would say I'd lean more towards the the former, not the latter in this one. I think it is more of the traditional um, kind of, I don't want to use the term class warfare because it does, it's a little bit more um, uh, uh, kinetic than I'm, that I'm intending here. But I think it's the, the normal, let's say that the, the push and pull, the tug of war between the labor class and the capital class that we've seen probably throughout history, but definitely highlighted more in recent times since the Industrial Revolution really took hold in the last 200 years where... Yeah, it, it wasn't really a fight before that. It was just the capital class or whoever. The, the ownership class just ran over everybody else. Yeah, and there was also... A, this is interesting in preparing for today. I mean, there was just a different... I mean, it, I think it's very difficult for us to imagine what the world was like prior to the Industrial Revolution because we've never experienced anything different, which is... You know, there, there, there was, you know, monarchies, there was the nobility class, all that. But then remember, you had the merchant class. You had a lot of it, it, the, the culture coming out of the Middle Ages, if we say, you know, we're based on the Western system here, um, would be was that they looked at children as the property of the father and you had things like apprenticeships. So if your dad was a blacksmith, there was a 99 percent chance that you were going to be a blacksmith. And when you start going through puberty, you know, as an early teen, you were going to just go with your dad into the blacksmith shop. Or if you were a young lady, you were going to go with your mom and help out around the house and do those things. And so there, there wasn't this type of unskilled labor in the same way that the Industrial Revolution 
created and also because well, of the, the unskilled labor, quote unquote, was just farm. It was everyone else, yeah. which was the most of the people, though. I mean, like the the, the skilled labor was always going to be something. But again, they were, unskilled labor wasn't pooled together necessarily and then reliant. Yeah, that's, that's just a, lived on the a land. better way to and, put it. Yeah. And it was futile, though, because they didn't they lived on the land, but they didn't own that land. Yeah, know, that was land that it was owned by. That's what I meant. Like the ownership class just. They just ran the whole show. There wasn't the serfs by and large. I mean, there were a few th- reports in history, the serfs, whether it be in China or in, you know, the, in Europe, they weren't out there striking and winning a bunch of concessions from the term landlord, yeah. <laughs> you know. But, no, and that's but a I great mean, point. But, yeah. But well, that's why just to finish, those, I mean, you make a very good point, And I correct myself there that, that, of course, there has always been unskilled labor. But but to the point of the Industrial Revolution, remember, I mean, the big thing was human migration that happened in a scale that had never been seen before. Because think about it, um, for the Chinese, enough Chinese workers to get from China to the United States in the mid-1800s, that didn't happen before because we didn't have steamships and then ships that ran on, 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 on oil that could get a human being across the ocean in less than a week. Um, and so then you had the waves of immigrants coming from Europe in the early to late uh, 19th through early 20th century. And that created this pool of unskilled labor that was also in a new place. And it was a lot of it was kind of like, OK, so what do you do with all these people? And they were the ones working in the equivalent of sweatshops today. So it's an yeah. interesting dynamic that is just playing so, out but again. The, le- yeah. yeah, leading that, le- coming from that, basically, your point being that there's there's just, once you had that, then we've set the stage for periodic labor. Correct. Labor yeah. versus capital types of things, which, again, really picked up once you had organized labor really start becoming a thing. Because, yeah. I mean, organized labor, you, in order to look at any type of labor conflict, you have to look at organized labor as the converse to the corporation type of thing. Like corporations are... Uh, entities uh, that are that are authorized by the state. They're they're not natural entities. You know, they 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 are created by documents and so forth, and uh, and recognized by the state to be able to sue and enter into contracts and so forth. And labor, you you know, capital though is the way it can be organized in a corporation to become a legal entity. Well, labor can be organized and conversely into a union to become an entity, a separate entity that can act on behalf of a lot of of workers. And so that they're a counterbalance. Unions are a natural counterbalance to the idea of a corporation or any type of corporate entity. Uh, but what's interesting to me, I looked at this and looked at, you know, even in the light of the writer's strike and the actor strike, there seem to be a lot of battles over the direction of that these these uh, industries are going, you know, like in the in the in Hollywood, they're talking about AI, they're talking about all these different things. And people want to make sure they don't get left out with the UAW. They're talking about there, there's automation going on and everything like that. But then the the head of the, the UAW comes out and starts talking like, hey, yeah, this is this is the billionaires versus everybody else. And so I'm like, OK, well, maybe this is just normal ca- class you know, conflict or class warfare. You know, it's interesting. You said you don't like to use that language, but it's 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 interesting because I think the 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 upper class, the billionaire class, always acts like if there's a class war going on, and then everybody else is kind of like, oh, we don't want to say that, we don't want to say that. But like the the if you look at how the our economy and our the the the, the ways things have worked in our country and just how wealth inequality has exploded over the past forty years, for example. There has, I mean, it's the Warren Buffett quote, you know, the, which is like, oh yeah, there's a class war and my class is winning. <laughs> you know, it's like, so in this instance, what, what makes this notable really is that there seems to be some, uh, some strength in the pushback from labor that we haven't seen in 50 years. 
Yeah, and I think part of it, because you're right, I mean, look, I, I think that Warren Buffett's joke is one of those jokes that's funny because it's true, <laughs> and and but he's right, and his class has perpetually won at all times. Um, yeah. I mean, even when it appears that they were losing, like let's say the French Revolution or the New Deal, it's not like there weren't people They were people temporary still, losses, basically. Uh, but they weren't even really losses. I mean, there was still a class system and there were still people in the top one or top 5% like we have today. It's just that maybe their, their ability to continue to um, uh, gain more capital from the system was maybe hampered for a bit, but it's not like they went from being at the very top to the middle or the bottom. Um, well, no, but people- I don't think that's the, I mean, unless somebody's looking at, looking at this from a pure, like communism standpoint, I don't, I think it's relative. It's relative wins yeah. versus relative losses. Like, the capital class when they were earning when when CEOs the average salary of a CEO was fifty to one to the average worker or, or something like that that was looked at as a loss relative to now when it's like four hundred to one you know or something yeah. like that and so th- when you're looking at the the class the quote unquote class conflict and it's really about how you're sharing the spoils of business you know how much is going to be given to the ownership class and how much is going to be shared amongst the workers who are generating the productivity and so there's always going to be a fight over that distribution. You know, it's the distribution of of, of the spoils and yeah. the, the 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 capital class, the labor, or excuse me, the capital class, the ownership class has done historically, as you point out, I think correctly, has done a good job of making sure that that's very much so slanted or completely slanted in their favor. You look at something like the New Deal, and I mean, I, I point to that from a modern standpoint is the only time that labor kind of got on close to even footing to where capital was. And so ever since then, it's been, it's been downhill again. And so now again, the question being is, or not the question for our show, but just in general, when we're looking at something like this is there's a lot, there seems to be a lot of momentum behind what the UAW is doing again. And there's other high profile things going on. So it's like, are we looking at some kind of sea change here where maybe the trajectory it starts to change a little bit and workers are able to demand more of a fair share in terms of what, of the spoils of, 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 you know, businesses doing well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're too early to tell, right? I yeah, think there, yeah, there's yeah. going to be many forks in the road on this journey, you know, and 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 as a true fork in the road, right? We're going to be stuck, and the system is either going to go left or right. And I think we'll we'll look back five, ten years from now and be able to probably answer that with a lot more clarity of which direction it went. But I think for now, as you you you, you say something, I want to I want to touch on because you've said this in the past, both on our show and in private conversation about the New Deal. Um, and as you say it, it makes me realize how. Again, we're still early in this new journey of this way of doing economies and human societies. Because if you think about the Industrial Revolution, is about roughly 200 years old. You know, the consensus is that it started in the early 1800s. So you figure we're in the early 2000s. So by 100 years ago, roughly, right, 90 years ago, around the, the time of the New Deal in 1930s, the Industrial Revolution was only about 100 years old. And, and like most new things, right, it's... Things got to work themselves through the system a bit. It takes a few generations to see how things play out. And we had a few things happen in that first hundred years, right? We had some people that figured it out quickly, like John D. Rockefeller or Cornelius Vanderbilt or Andrew Carnegie, you know, John Pierpont Morgan, people, you know, that Gilded Age class that became so wealthy that they basically owned everything, right? And then you had, and those were the days when you had coal companies and steel companies where all the employees lived in a town that was owned by the company. They used you know, currency that was the company's currency. They had to shop at company stores and they were basically like modern day indentured servants. And, and so 
what happened is you had reactions to that, like Marxism, communism, socialism, which were ideas, right? And as you well pointed, um, Roosevelt used to speak to the capital class in the 30s. Well, he and was said, a member of, really. Yeah, because yeah, he and was wealthy. FDR, and, right, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. Yeah, and, and, he, and he would tell them that I'm saving capitalism by doing this. Because yeah, saving unless, you from yourself. <laughs> yeah, because if we look back at that period of the 1920s, 30s, you had the Soviet Revolution in 1917, all this stuff was going on. And there was a lot of interest in the United States in communism and socialism. I mean, there are some truths to those fears that were there at the time. And so that was one thing that, that Roosevelt was trying to say is that if you don't give some concessions and allow labor to have a little bit of a you know, benefit from the labor um, and enjoy some of the spoils, then they are going to come and burn this thing down too, just like they burned it down in Russia and these other parts of the world at the time. Yes. And so, or you're going to give strength rise to someone like Mussolini or Hitler, who at the time were fascists, right? That just, just and getting because they're preying on the populism of workers looking for an answer to why you know if we're working so hard, why why do we have so little and why Correct. you know like so. But no, and I so, think that's a good point. And yeah, I, and that that's well, why I just wanted to bring that up and say that's why in today we're looking at something similar where just like in a hundred years ago there was a lot of change in technology there was a lot of demographic shifts just like we talked about the the Italian immigrants the Irish immigrants you know 100 120 years ago were 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 seen as taking jobs from the real Americans back then yeah. and it's the same argument we're hearing about people coming from south of the border now so it's well, a, I just feel like we're in that stage again where well we, and that's it, it's because ultimately like Capitalism, and, and you and I agree on this. Like capitalism is the best system, so to speak, that we've seen thus far to really supercharge human ingenuity and to keep an economic system that can turn over to keep going. But what a lot of people who agree with that fail to recognize a lot of times is that capitalism does break itself if it's not periodically checked. And that reason for that is that if you logically follow out the way capitalism works, what will end up happening is you'll have one person with all the money and everything. Because that person, whoever wins, you're supposed to continue to grow and grow and grow and you buy up your competitors or anything like that. So you have to put constraints on that. You have to figure out ways to not end up with just one winner or if you go back to the Gilded Age, just five winners or whatever. And the, the right now, we're in a time period where some experts are saying the level of inequality does rival that of the Gilded Age. So we're getting to a place where you start society starts to grumble, so to speak, like, hey, there's a, there's a lot going, there's a lot of, of winning going on and People, by and large, aren't benefiting or you know, aren't, aren't getting a fair share of that winning. And so yeah. when you have that type of situation, actually, that's the job of the union, basically, because what we don't want to have happen. And this is like this is when you see stuff like this, there's an encouraging factor on this, because what you don't want to have happen is the French Revolution. You don't want violence to start breaking out because that's on the table as well. It's like when when the, the, the public gets so dissatisfied as far as the way the system is working from an economic standpoint, then, and which capitalism, like I said, the natural progression of it is eventually to go that way. If you don't put it, you know, check it from time to time, antitrust is a check on that. The market system itself is a check on capitalism because again, capitalists, why compete? <laughs> Just buy your, your competitor, you know? And so the market system itself, but when these checks get weak, then the system starts to, to pull and tug and then people go to overreactions like a communism, which is something yeah. that is coming from a place of, hey, the capitalism thing is not serving people. Let's come up with something else. But it's, it's just an overreaction. It's something that doesn't necessarily, at least thus far, has been proven to not work and is, it serves as an overreaction. So we're in the phase now where we need labor, organized labor, to constructively, through things like strikes and organizing and so forth, to 
put more of a check on the capital system, make sure that the spoils are shared more throughout society so that society can continue to, to move forward under a capitalist system that drives human ingenuity and so forth. So, I mean, do you see beyond what we're talking about now, do you see um, things in, in the strike or around here that, that you find encouraging as far as from looking at our overall system and, you know, and, and what's going on? Um, yeah, I do. And, and I'll mention those in a sec. I just want to touch on something you said that was in my mind, which is antitrust. Yeah. And um, the more, you know, obviously, the more I mature as a human being and observe all this stuff, and especially in my profession, which deals with finance and economics, um, the more I, I believe that we all um, underestimate the real value that uh, kind of Teddy Roosevelt gave us over 100 years ago with the trust busting stuff with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission and antitrust laws, because I think that's part of it. And we don't realize the relationship. I think most of us don't. And it's and it's not an easy connection to see um, the, the relationship between this whole labor market discussion we're having and the idea of antitrust, because what yeah. you're saying when you're just to kind of back it up, when you say that if you just let capitalism go totally unfettered without regulation, that you'll have you know one guy at the top with all the money, whether it's one guy or it's a it's a small class of people. Yeah, is, yeah. is, is it? I know you're talking figuratively, but it's yeah. kind of the joke we make that you know there are pure examples of capitalism, but none of us probably would like them. And they're in countries like Somalia, Afghanistan, because there's their third world and there's no checks on anything. It's just whoever has the most money and the most guns got every all the all the wealth, and everyone else is starving, and so. None of us probably want to enjoy. And there's no it. mechanism to change that. Like it's right. just, it's just how it is, and that's how it's going to be, absent some violent type of situation, which is not the direction we want to go in. Yeah, and if we look but at if we the, where help, the you know so the sure. country was, let's say in the 1890s and and that period economically, one could make the argument that it was it was a result of 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 that monopolization, right? That, yeah. that these companies yeah. got so so big that they didn't have to honor their workers anymore because basically everybody needs to work in this, like we said, in, in capitalism, you need money to pay your bills and pay your rent and pay your light and all that. So if you don't have a job, you, you, you're on the street. So when, when forced to take certain jobs, people will take them. And I think that if you look at today, something like the writer's strike in Hollywood is a good example because we haven't dealt with antitrust in a serious way in a while as a nation, let's call it the last decade or two, we have companies now like Google or Amazon or Microsoft. I mean, Amazon's a great example. They own a grocery store chain in Whole Foods. So they're in the food business. They're clearly in the retail business. They manufacture their own products, plus they sell other people's products on their site. They're in the content and entertainment business because Amazon Prime creates its own movies and, and documentaries and and, and TV shows. And then they're now in the healthcare game because, you know, I think I share with you that when I changed my health insurance last year, my, for my son's type one diabetes, all of a sudden the box coming has a smiley face on it. And it says Amazon pharmacy with all his insulin and all his devices. So a company like Netflix, you know, and, and companies like Google and Microsoft, if they're, if they're creating AI and that's tech stuff, and now companies like um, uh, sorry, uh, Amazon and Netflix team up and they're making content, but yet they're able to use AI. This is a new technology now that creates questions for the labor union, right? To say, okay, well, what does this mean for us? I'm an actor or I'm a writer. If you now can take my face Im image or my voice and just recreate this going forward, do I deserve to benefit from that? Cause it still was off of my original 
stuff. And those are questions that couldn't be answered prior to this era because yeah. the technology. Well, those are there. questions that didn't need to be asked <laughs> prior yeah, to exactly. this era. You know, it so, was like so. Now these are new questions. So that's that's the part of it really that is that it's not just about the class struggle. Like there are new questions that are coming up because of the way. In a, in a positive way, yeah, I would yeah. argue that society is developing, and so they need to answer these questions. And it's good to have a labor union in that sense to stand up on behalf of the workers. Because if it wasn't for the union, then the companies would just dictate the terms and say, "Look, if you're in one movie for us, then we can forever use your likeness." You know, and in the example of the actors, we can forever use your likeness. We can just modify it with AR, AI and never have to pay you again. Yeah. Deal with it. And if you don't want to deal with it, you just don't have to work for us, you know, like and so forth. So the unions allow, give the workers an opportunity to stand in a sense toe to toe and say, well, no, that's not fair. Let's do something that makes sense for both parties and not just you dictating to us. And as, as you, to your Amazon example, as you point out, the, the more industries you're in, one, the more economies of scales you can take advantage of and then buy other people. Like in the entertainment game, it's really particular where you have this, and this hasn't always been the case, you have people that produce entertainment content and then you have entities that that distribute it and what's happening over the last 20 years or so is that now you're having people they they produce it and distribute it which again makes it more difficult for everyone else to compete makes them larger makes them have more bargaining power over everybody and it again throws the system out of whack if amazon up and decides to buy a movie studio now because amazon's so big and bad then that's going to further consolidate the market. And again, going towards this system, again, it, it's said for effect, but it's it's the point where one person just owns everything. And so the other thing, or the one, one thing I want to mention, though, in particular, as far as the positives that we're seeing right now, one, like I said, to the point that I made earlier, and just to say it clearly, this is a healthy operation of a, of a capitalist system. This is the part of the, the capitalist system that's necessary to keep the, the, the capital part growing. You know, you have to make sure there's complete, there, there's full buy-in, excuse me, from the capital and from the labor. And this is how you keep buy-in from the labor is to make sure there's a negotiating body on their behalf. But we hear so much about how everybody's just out for themselves and so selfish and everything like that. But this is an example and a reminder in society that there is power in solidarity solidarity within your, your group or your organization. And to be saying, okay, hey, we all are similarly situated. Let's work together and try to get a better outcome for all of us. That's something that, I mean, when you're in a nation, that's part of being a nation. When you're in any organization, that's part of being an organization is let's let's pool together and get strength from being together. And so just to see the, the this example of whether it be the Hollywood stuff, whether the writers and the actors, which have been going for you know, both of those have been going for months now, trying to get more of a fair shake. Or now we're seeing with the auto workers. I think that type of thing can we, we need buy in, whether it be in our economic system, whether it be in our, our government system or whatever. And so. This is the type of example that we want to see in terms of people getting together, trying to accomplish things together and not necessarily saying, oh, well, I just don't like it. So let's just blow it up. And that's so that's encouraging to me that we're seeing this demonstrated, exemplified with the unions right now. Yeah, no, I'm just to piggyback on what you said about the solidarity. I agree. And I think that part of what we see here, and I think this is a lesson for all of us, and, and we've discussed this as relates to other discussions in our culture and our society, is just like certain things like those in this argument about equality, for example, and that could be of any group, you know, whether feminism, racial stuff, whatever, um, there's always a group that's on the out in a society and then the group that's kind of the in crowd, the majority crowd. And those change over time. Like when we did our show on eugenics, it was Eastern Europeans 100, 120 years ago that were seen as the pariah and on the outs. 
At times it was African-Americans. At times it was gays. At times it was women. And each of those groups have jockeyed for their own independence and their own equality at certain periods in our history. And it's created cultural, whether upheavals or changes or whatever. And I think it's it's no different with, with labor and capital, whereas it's a constant tug of war. And these things are constantly going on within a society. And like we're talking about here, sometimes it's a little bit more kinetic and energetic. And other times there's a little bit more of a lull. Once people get through that busy period and there's a certain kind of cultural norms and there's like you've talked about in, in other shows, there's a living memory of this few generations. And then usually technology changes. Enough people have died from prior fights that don't remember, aren't there to, to kind of warn everyone else about these things. And then we see them pop up again, but it's usually the same type of uh, issues. And, and that's why I think- Let me, let me help with that point. Like there, there's a good example of that. And that is what led, the things that led to the Great Depression in terms of, of wealth concentration and, and so forth, those things were meant to be remedied by a lot of the New Deal policies. And so it's no coincidence that around the 1970s is when the people were able to start getting those policies, just start overturning those New Deal policies. It took about 30 years after they were enacted and worked and did exactly what built the biggest middle class in the history of the world. You know, it wasn't perfect, but again, it, it, you build the biggest middle class in the history of the world, you get to, to, to take a victory lap on that. And after that living memory kind of passes, technology, new challenges come up. It's like, okay, let's get rid of that stuff. And then we end up right back where we, we started, so to speak. Now, We've been able to, to borrow enough money to keep us from another Great Depression. But it's still been a situation where the lessons that were learned then get forgotten by a generation or so goes by. And then we end up having to learn these same lessons again. The people that talk about things being cyclical a lot of times, I think that underpins a lot of it. It's just that yeah. the people that are alive for a while, like, oh, we don't want to go down that road. Like the people that you've talked about this, that post-World War II, everybody kind of was like, yeah, yeah, that fascism thing. <laughs> you know, that's not the way to go. Yeah. But now, 2023, some people are like, hey, you know, yeah. fascism, looks you know, good. They never really tried that right. You know, they're like, <laughs> and it's the same to your point with the communist crowd, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah they yeah. tried communism and didn't work. But you got people today that are saying, right. oh, oh yeah, we, we should, should try, try this. Stuff. Like, well, hold so, on. yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, it's an interesting one, too, for the culture is uh, abortion, because it's something I think that's short enough where I've seen. I remember last year when when they overturned Roe, um, the Supreme Court. There are women on TV I was watching in their 70s saying, I can't believe, you know, in my lifetime, I saw this overturned. And I remember. And that's the same thing. I thought, well, what you didn't appreciate is for 50 years, there's people that didn't agree with you that were working hard on the other side and they wanted it more. And I think it's the same thing when you look at and, this. Like and by talking. the way, and it didn't appear kinetic at that time. Like you didn't yeah. know that the fight was still going on. You thought it was it was Correct. subtle, that's, but it yeah. wasn't. The, there were people in the background working to bring back what they wanted. And then it got hot. Once they already had the upper hand and you didn't yeah. even realize it. And there's never, and this is a great point. That's why there's not really a finish line to any of these cultural issues, because there's always every generation or two, there's just, you need to remind people why the things you think that are important to you, at least in this case, if we're talking about labor, having, having a say and a seat at the table that, that people can't forget because the capital side is always going to be trying to get more. And, yeah. and, that's, and that's, that's the nature of the game. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah, natural. Like, and, and I say this to people like, Again, I, I'll speak anecdotally for me because, you know, in the type of profession I'm in and I'm a business owner, I get to um, take all the legal loopholes of the tax code, for example, as a business owner. And I don't pay the same rate as my assistant, 
for example. It's, it's, I, I'm living not in Warren Buffett's uh, net worth sphere <laughs> or his world in that way, but as an entrepreneur, I get to play similar games. And the point is, is that I'm not giving writing one more penny than I have to in taxes as much as I love my country and I appreciate all my fellow Americans. If the IRS tells me I owe them this much, that's how much I'm paying them. I'm not going to be altruistic and say, well, if I end up making 10, 20 million in income and I somehow through legal loopholes only pay 1 million in income tax, that I'm just going to write an extra three, $4 million check because I'm just such a great guy and I want to help my country. That's just not how we are wired as humans. So that's why going back to this kind of at the, at the big top level, that's why collective bargaining and the ability for people that don't have a lot of strength in society, which are usually workers, you know, especially line workers and, and, and blue collar type workers. That's not as a, not as a, like a, a this, but just quote unquote, yeah, that's unskilled, I mean. like, unskilled they, work, yeah. you know, is generally has the least amount of bargaining power over their situation than, you know, like anyone else, you know, once right. you get yeah. into more skilled why, professions, they typically have a little more control over the wages and, or the, the amount of money that they're able to charge for what they do. Yeah. And, and, and the ability to lobby, you know, politicians, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you and I, you're an attorney, I own a wealth management firm. We're probably a lot more comfortable going into some room to speak to a congressperson than someone working the line in a meatpacking plant. It's just, you know, just different classes of, and, 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 and how you're able to, to deal with others in the society. So I think that, um, that all that kind of comes into play. And I think that's why we should always assume that these that this, this is never going to end. This yeah, is just yeah. Part of I being think that's a, a, the way you put it. There's no finish line. You know, like yeah. it's like there's this tension involved in, let's say, a free society, a democratic society. There's a tension involved in how much control is going to, or where control is going to be, who's going to exert control, you know, who's going to be able to vote, all that kind of stuff. That tension is a natural tension. It's always going to be there. If you believe a certain way and you sit out, you are giving up ground, basically. Yeah. Uh, I think the drive for growth. Is what and, and and you know to 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 for the drive for more the drive for growth is what makes capitalism strong. You know, like that's what it taps into in the human spirit that makes capitalism something that can work. Unlike you know, like other systems that we've seen, but it also creates the mechanism for it to spin out of control. So capitalism's greatest strength also creates the vulnerability where it can spin out of control and make our societies break down. And so the the unions play an important role in, you know, as with as antitrust, as with the you know, the market system, it plays an important role in keeping that from spinning out of control and allowing the capital allow us to to harness the strengths of the capitalist system without having our societies crash, our economies crash every 30 years. You know, yeah. and so that's kind of that's what we're in right now is is this conditions have gotten sufficient to where labor is like, OK, yeah, we, we're, we're going to take a stand and we're seeing this in multiple places. And so I find that encouraging. I think that's something that, you know, it, 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 it's almost like when things swing too far in one direction, you know, you got this pushback. And so we should it's going to be messy, as with any type of unless if you want clean, you got to go authoritarian, which we don't want to go. If It's going to be a little messy, but this is just part of what's needed. And so. Looking at that, though, you know, and kind of taking more of a step back, you know, we just celebrated. I mean, this is September. We just celebrated Labor Day, you know, which is like a real <laughs> holiday, you know, and, and it's it's aptly named, you know, Labor Day, you know. And so we know that organized labor has helped deliver a lot of things um, that we take for granted, you know, today, you know, things like a five day work week, which is not like some that's not ordained from the heavens. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah. like something people had to fight for. Uh, or the eight hour again, eight hour workday, you know, again, not ordained from the heavens, you know, something that people had to fight for. So. 
But that stuff, you know, like those those fights, again, they may still be, there may not be a finish line, but in general, they seem to, society has seemed to settle into to those types of things. So do you think organized labor still has a role like in our modern society in the same way that it did maybe in the Teddy Roosevelt time or the Franklin Roosevelt time when the capital really just ran through labor with no regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, I think just like we just got done talking about and, and just now was, there is no finish line. So there's always going to be a need, just like I said with the other stuff about, you know, equality and all that in the society, right? If, if you're going to have equality in a democracy and not one group trying to suppress another, then you constantly need, the society itself has to constantly have mechanisms that promote, you know, equality and, and treating people the same and, and, and doesn't promote division, right? In certain ways. Um, and I think it's the same thing with, the culture of a society as it relates to labor and capital that you want to have, because some of this stuff is like we've learned right in this last decade of just watching our society, um, whatever direction a listener here thinks it's going, um, that we've learned definitely that there's difference between what's legal and what is then considered more of a cultural norm. And I have learned in this last decade, the importance of cultural norms more so than I had uh, understood them before. Because you can't legislate everything. And it goes back to like when we did the book on Dr. King, he, he said it, you can't legislate what's in people's heads, right? If, you know, my goal in a, being an American is not to try and make, let's say, everybody not racist or not sexist. That's up to, you know, if I believe in a free country, then they, everyone's free to think how they want. I just don't want to be imposed upon or suffer because I'm of a group that's different than someone else. So that's really the key. And I think it's the same with labor, right? Like I'm, like I said, I'm in a type of wealth state right now in my life that I can play certain games that are legal tax wise, and I don't have to pay the same tax rates as a regular W-2 employee. I don't want to change that. But if someone in the system forces me to change it, I got to conform. So that's, that's really kind of my point is saying is that we, we, we all need to recognize that the fact that there's no finish line means that this is an ongoing struggle. And I think to your point, the fact that labor is now rearing its head again and is being effective at doing it should tell us all that, okay, we need to probably stop and listen and see what's going on here. Yeah. And then, and then, and like we said, some of it may be hype, some of it may be real, all that, but it, it, it requires everyone looking in. And that's why I thought about, and just to end this, this part of the discussion on this, because I love your thoughts. And I know you love the sports is um, I thought about the analogy of collective bargaining in sports because with sports, it's very interesting because I was joking in my head thinking, well, sports is really billionaires fighting <laughs> multimillionaires, right? Like no one, it's not like the traditional labor fights where we really do have single moms that are making very low money and have childcare costs and all these other things. And we're, it's you know, not those a are, fight to get into the middle class. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, yeah. And it's not a fight to get food on the table. These yeah. are people that are, whether because and, and I had a good friend about 10 years ago who was really in the middle of the collective bargaining agreement in the NBA between mm -hmm. the owners and the players. And I remember him telling me that the fight was about literally one percent because it was this needle of 50 50 and the players wanted I, I, I'm going to botch this, but I think it was the players wanted 50 50 and the owners wanted like 48 for the players and 52 for the owners. And I think they might have said that's in terms of the total revenue split. Total all revenue the money of the whole in. league, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and including the, the stuff from the video games, all that stuff. And so 
I think if my memory serves correctly, that they settled on 49 to the players and 51% to the owners. And my friend was telling me that he was, because he was talking to both ownership and players at the time. And he told me that he was telling the players at the time, guys, let's not go and, and keep pushing this out because of the public perception and all that kind of stuff. Cause you guys are going to make so much more money than you ever have. If this thing goes through even at 49%. And that's where I thought it's interesting because what is fair when you've got billions of dollars raining on a league and you've got some guys making, you know, literally now getting paid two, $300 million over a four or five year period. Clearly the owners are making a ton of money too, but what is all that? (laughs) By definition, they're making, but that's why to me, it's an interesting conversation with sports because it's not about like, it's not a dire straits thing. Like, Oh, we got to give them this. But the same principle applies though. What's fair. Yeah. And and that's how you define fair can differ from different people, you know, like, but to me, when I look at situations like that, just like when I look at it here, it's just, you have to account for now the, 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 the argument from capital is always, well, we put up the money. This enterprise wouldn't exist if it wasn't for us, so to speak. And, but the argument for the labor is that, well, we're putting the skin in the game. You know, like we're the ones who are actually having the productivity that's allowing this thing to turn over. So both sides have to recognize their role and acknowledge the other's role. But at the same time, you have to look at it from a standpoint where both sides are vested in the business succeeding as well. And so when I look at when I look back, actually, when labor got big, labor was as powerful as it ever was. You go back to the 1950s, 1960s in the United States, 1970s, early. Labor, I think, lost sight of that. Labor, just like any organization uh, into, you know, institution, once they get too much power, they start, you know, kind of losing sight of what's important, you know? And so we've yeah. seen that now, but I, I can say that labor did that, but we see corporations do this all the time. So again, those are really flip sides, flip sides of the same coin in terms of labor and, and, and labor unions and, and corporations and so forth. So both sides have to recognize each other's value. And then both sides have to recognize the value of the ongoing enterprise. And so to me, that's the balance that has to be, be struck when you're dealing with these, you know, like, and, and as far as the role of, of labor, I think it's more important than ever, so to speak, actually, that the, 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 the stakes continue to, they don't get lower, so to speak. Now, granted, yes, if you have seven day work weeks, that's, that's high stakes. Like they're, they're not fighting over that now. Like the, the, I think the UAW is trying to get from a 40 hour work week to a 32 hour work week. That's completely different game than what they were fighting for in the 1930s, you know, in 1940s and so forth. Uh, but we also don't know that, that this is a negotiation. So, you know, it, that could be one of the positions that's there in order to, to concede later in order to get something else you want. So you can't judge their demands, so to speak, on a point by point basis. You have to judge ultimately what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. But when you look at the overall, what they're trying to do, it, the the stakes of keeping our society together remain as they did, you know, a hundred years ago. And so that's really like, and, and if, if inequality grows, if, if to a certain extent, then our society will fracture based on history. You know, we know that. So this is a part, getting the fair share of the employees, not doing it to, to the point where you break the business or you break the enterprise, but getting the fair share. And because again, the natural inclination from the capital isn't just to say, hey, let's give up the fair share. Frederick Douglass has to quote, power can seize nothing without demand. Like that's, that's, that's well known amongst, you know, humanity. So 
the 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 role that they play is still a very and that was really the, the better way to ask that question is how important or is, is the role more important or is the, the same level of importance it remains as important because again it's a vital aspect to the ongoing functioning of the capitalist system for us to harness the benefits of the capitalism capitalist system we need them to continue to make sure that the capitalists don't go too far into the nat- natural inclination to spin this thing out of control so I do want to move to our second topic today though uh, or you know at this point. Um, now, you sent me something that was pretty interesting. You know, you and I both like to exercise, you know, and, and so forth. And like from time to time, you know, like there, there are whole magazines and, and publications dedicated to, oh, you got to do this workout, do that workout. You go to the gym. There's all these different types of machines and so forth. And so I, I, it's always funny when I see these articles saying, hey, you see this equipment in the gym? Don't use this. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on. Why is it in the gym then? But so what was your takeaway uh, or, you know, just your thoughts on the, the seven exercises or machines, so to speak, in the gym that experts are saying to not use? Or did any of them stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, I, I kind of uh, had already been uh, pointed in this direction for years just reading other things and dealing with trainers and people like that that would tell me, hey, don't. It's better to use the free weights like dumbbells or maybe a barbell if you have to, depending on something, than, than – um, then a lot of those machines. hyper-isolation machines, yeah, like hyper-isolation. Yeah. Correct, because you're, you're, especially things like bench press and the squats, like they said in the article with dismissive machines, I, that's when I was taught actually when I was playing college basketball by our trainer because part of it, especially with the squats, he was always saying that you're, you're, you're not um, – um, you, you, the muscles that are used to balance you. Stabilizer you. muscles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. Stabilizer, that's the word. I learned the uh, same lesson. Yeah, aren't, <laughs> yeah, aren't yeah. being worked when you have a machine helping you, right? Yeah. And and the guy made a good point here, like, because I've, I mean, probably I have some of this too, right? Like, who knows if my both my arms and my legs are exactly the same size to the millimeter, right? If you're yeah. a little bit longer on one arm than the other or something, the machines don't help you compensate like you can if you're just using free weights. So, uh, it's funny. All that to me made sense. Uh, it's just there was a couple of things I was doing, like the um, um, still doing, like the uh, the the, the um, tricep extension, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's funny. I stopped doing them about a year ago because I started I was just getting a hurt elbow. Yeah. And yeah, I don't yeah. do tricep exercise anymore. I just do push ups and I do some dips sometimes, but I don't isolate my tricep alone. Yeah. And it's funny because I was thinking about this like four months ago, just looking in the mirror, like. It's not like my triceps went down because I stopped focusing on them because they're yeah. still getting worked out with the other stuff. So a lot of it made sense, you know, reading this. No, and I think it's a good reminder from time to time because it's kind of <laughs> like the 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 you, you keep the main thing, the main thing, so to speak. When you exercise, it's easy to be like, oh, you know, like I can focus on this. I can isolate that. If, you know, like if you're doing anything more than like when you're doing the basics, you're doing the basics, but it's like, oh, I want to, I want my arms to get bigger. So let me go focus on my arms or I want, you know, this, my, my chest or my arm. Like we saw this when we were younger, you know, it's a tendency amongst the younger kids actually to, to not work out your legs, you know, because everybody wants to be swole up top. And I guess men, you know, like the women, not necessarily <laughs> the case, but like everybody wants to be swole. And so you'd have people that, that start building a bunch of muscle up top and, you know, their legs are really weak, you know? So, but yeah, I, I, for me, I have always leaned in this kind of direction, but it's similar to what you said about the elbow. For me, it was it was really about like I work out, particularly once I got to be like, you know, my 30s, you know, like or late 20s, 30s. It's like, hey, man, number one objective here, like I want to be in shape and I want to get myself stronger and or keep my strength now that I'm in my 40s. But I don't want to get hurt. 
You know, it's so like, yeah. I don't want to be working out and then injure myself, you know? So like, what can I do to make sure that I limit injury risk? And a lot of that, when I was reading about that was about avoiding the hyper isolation, you know? So you're talking about like the, 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 the tricep extensions and so forth. And that's really hard on your, um, yeah. on your, on your elbow, you know? And so it's like, well, hold on the amount of weight that you have to lift to work your tricep will put an excess strain on your elbow. And so I was like, okay, well, that's good to know. Like, I don't, I, if I want to do that, like you said, it's bench press, it's, it's, you know, like dips and things like that. And that works not just the elbow itself, but I'm, I have several joints, multi-joint movements distribute the tension over multi, multiple joints. The yeah. Smith machine was, I thought that was a personal philosophy of mine, like in terms of, <laughs> okay, I don't use the Smith machine because, because I put a cage in my garage, you know, like, but I, and I didn't want to get a, a Smith machine. I didn't want the track. The Smith machine is, is similar to, you know, it's, it's on a track. The, the, the barbell is on a track. And so you can load it up, but you don't have to worry about it falling or anything like that. But like you said, the stabilizer piece, I didn't want from, again, from an injury standpoint, I didn't want to be able, my muscles to be able to lift a certain amount of weight that my joints and the rest of my body couldn't support. It's yeah. like, well, hold on. What, what happens if I need to hold up something and then my muscles are okay, but then my joints just fall apart? So to me, it was it, there, there's a philosophy behind this. This is like granular on it. Like there's a philosophy though. Like you train your body like it works, how it works, not like it's some like it's, it's some isolated activity. And so that to me was the biggest takeaway is like, well, how does this muscle, how do these muscle groups work together? Let's not just look at the one muscle and try to just do that because that can have unintended consequences. Yeah, and it's interesting too because I think part of it is as as we learn more in, in research, you know, and goes into this whole sports medicine science and and how we our, our bodies move. We, there's just like other things in medicine. There's certain times when certain things are in favor, and then other times that they might be out of favor with new discoveries. Yeah. And so I think you know there was a time when it was seen as well, this is the right thing to do to isolate all these muscles and all that. And now we're learning that you know that's probably not the best use of 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 the body. And, well, and, and, and in a sense, you probably had to go through the process yeah, of no, I agree. thinking that it's the right thing to do it's, in order to learn those unintended consequences. You can't yeah, learn unintended and, consequences in advance. It's the butter and margarine thing I always talk about that you have to watch certain things play out and how people's bodies reacted to some things yeah. you know, to realize that trans fats and processed food might not be the great solution. For sure. But no, and it's le at least to know for sure. Because there's some yeah. people are like, oh, this is going to happen. But you never know if that's actually the case or if that could be alarmist sometimes. And just by the way, you know, we will have all the stuff we're discussing will be in the show notes at the, you know, and you can you can pull up, uh, you know, on, on our website or, you know, on the YouTube page or at where the pod, where you get the podcast. But another interesting thing, too, that I realized just in reading for today and just my own experience, because having played college basketball, I've got several injuries that I've accumulated over the years, um, two ACL tears. Um, I tore my Achilles when I was 33 playing in some Monday night league out there, um, still thinking I could play ball, you know, and all that. So what what I realized is like one of the, the um, uh, exercises they actually have here is the leg extension machine. Yeah. And I used yeah, to yeah. live on that thing when I was in college and all that. And I used to I mean, serious weights we would put up on those yeah. leg extensions. And it was all about strengthening the knee. You know, especially after well, my ACL. Quad. You know, the leg yeah. extension is the one where you're sitting down and your knee is at a 90 degree angle and you have weight in front of your, your shin yeah. and you push that forward. Correct. And so especially after coming out of an ACL tear, that type of exercise was seen as important because it was isolating my left knee, which needed to get re-strengthened. Yeah. And so what I realized in reading this is probably what the right advice would have been is, hey, man. After this injury, you need to work out like this maybe for a year, 
or something like, you know, like some period of time. What happened is I kept working on those kind of machines when I used to be a member of a gym like LA Fitness and all that up until my mid 30s. Yeah. And what would happen is I remember because I this just brought a bunch of memories just reading, you know, preparing for this discussion. And I realized, man, my knee has not hurt for me for about seven, eight years now. Like I've been feeling great. And then that's what I thought about it. Yeah, because I haven't been going to the gym like that in that period of time. I've been doing different types of exercise, walking. I do squats now. Functional where I just, stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, which exactly. they talk about in the in the article. I, I wanded to mention the leg machine as well, the leg extension yeah. machine, because, yeah, you see that. That's another one of those things. Like, you, it really works your quads as well, your, your quadricep muscles, yeah. which is the front of the, 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 the thigh. And, you know, so I remember, like, that's one of the ones that people love to do, and they want to get, you know, that definition there. But- now, I had the same issue with that one uh, as I had with the with the tricep extension is that the amount of weight that I had to put on it to actually work because I, I I I do a lot of squats you know things like that uh, lunges and and which are those are the more functional things so if I wanted to work my quad I had to put so much weight on there that I could feel it in my knee and my knee would start hurting and I'm like well hold on why is my knee hurting and so I uh, you know again I just stopped doing that back in my twenties like oh I can't do this exercise because the, I'd rather put you know, uh, a bunch of weight on a squat and then push that up and down. And that, I, don't, I don't feel pain afterwards with that. But when I would isolate a particular muscle and try to put, and it was just one joint, one joint, the squat is two joints. It's your hip and it's your knee versus, you know, just one joint. Then it's just that knee. Then again, the amount of weight I put on there to work the actual muscle was straining my knee. So yeah, I mean, it's, you, 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 if you, that's the other thing with, with any type of exercise as well, though, is you got to listen to your body, you know, yeah. and then you got to you be flexible in terms of, okay, well, if my body's hurting, I either, my form is off and I got to figure out, you know, what, what's wrong there, or I may be doing something that's not conducive to, to building my body as opposed to breaking it down. Yeah. And I think the, the one thing too, that I noticed when I stopped doing those isolated, uh, kind of weights as much is, uh, really my back pain was a lot less, um, because what I realized is, like you're saying, just by focusing, let's say, just on your quad or when I was just doing the, like I said, I was having uh, elbow pain uh, eventually after doing tricep extensions is because you're just working out one muscle and our bodies are very good at pulling <laughs> and, 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 and from one area and yeah. compensating for another. So if, if you're only working out, let's say, like you're saying, your quadricep and you're not working out your hamstring exactly the same type of way, eventually your body's going to be pulling in one area because now that quadriceps got all this activity going on and it needs all this calories and it needs all this stuff to go in there and feed it. And you're, it's, it's, you know, it's an imbalance and it starts pulling it. it, it, If you do that and you're not strengthening the hamstring to the same degree, to your point, it starts pulling on your lower back or your knee, you know? And and so, you know, like you're like, Oh, well I'll do the leg extension and also do the leg curl. And it's like, but you're not working those because you're not working them in concert. You can't really say that they're both going to increase in strength in kind of a proportional way as they will if you're just doing squats, you know. And you know what that made me think of is, and this is plug for the audience to go look in our library for our show we did on the book Sapiens. Mm. But remember in the book, he made a good point in saying that once human beings got out of being hunter-gatherers and started going into the agrarian age and farming and all that was when the fossil records of humans start showing injuries like herniated discs and and shoulder separations and all these things. And I thought that's what got me thinking like, yeah, it's like working out. It's no different. At what point is this overhead extension of a tricep an actual natural movement that I would do in the wild? You know what I mean? Or like you're saying, like a leg extension that I would literally be sitting somewhere on a rock and just pushing my leg up and down if this was, you know, 10,000 years ago (laughs) and I'm sitting somewhere. No, but a squat is a natural 
movement, right? You're picking up something. Or I thought about it, even when you're laying down, you kind of do like a dip or if you're sitting down to get up, you know, that's kind of more of a natural, you're pushing yourself up off something. So I think a lot of this, like we've done with other areas, let's say in medicine and science, as we learn about our bodies, just like, you know, issues like carpal tunnel syndrome or people having issues with their necks and their backs from sitting in front of computers all day. Like these are things that, yeah, because human beings weren't designed to behave this way. And so when we behave this way for too long in a lifetime, your body starts suffering. And I think it's the same way that now we're learning through exercise. Hey, maybe the, the natural movements are the best way for us to stay conditioned and stay in shape without adding all these additional potential harms and injuries over, especially as we get older over yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. It kind of, it, it mirrors what humans do in a lot of ways. This is our ingenuity. Like we start with the basics and then we try to figure out, well, how can we improve on the basics? And we introduce all these things and some of them are good. You know, some of them are good improving on the basics. Like I think a kettlebell is, you know, a great way to improve <laughs> upon the basics, but then there's other things that we add that try to improve upon the basics and we do all this stuff. And then it's like, oh, well, these, these things actually are not as helpful as we thought. And so the, the key in that sense is to stay, remain flexible and to keep paying attention and to not say, okay, we add this stuff. It's in forever now. You know, it's, it's a constant evaluation on what's working and what's not. And that's on an individual level as well as, you know, like just kind of paying attention from a societal standpoint. So to me, you know, like that's what we're seeing here is just that that's that feedback. Okay. Like we threw a bunch of stuff in to try to improve upon the basics. And then the, the ultimate results or the ultimate advice coming back here is like, yeah, focus on the basics. You know, there are a couple things that, that, you know, we, we've added to the mix that are helpful with that, but the basics are what's going to allow you to improve strength, you know, and so forth, but not to, to lessen your risk for injury, you know, which to me, again, like I said, if I'm, if I'm exercising, if I'm voluntarily exercising, which I want to do, you know, I think one of the most important things with that is, is to, that's not the Hippocratic oath, but it's important. Don't hurt yourself first, you know? <laughs> well, so now that we got through the easy part of this discussion, now we're going to talk about vaccines, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was your obligatory mention for us to, to get more, to, to get more into the, you know, like to get into the algorithm, right? <laughs> so. No comment. That's just me saying, I, I think we're time's up on the show. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But no, I, I think we can wrap up here, man. Uh, but we appreciate everybody for joining us on this episode of Call Like I See It. Subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, tell us what you think, send it to a friend. Until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Wanlana. All right, we'll talk to you next time.